I hope you will indulge me this morning, one additional Christmas reflection. I have a hard time not preaching Christmas surrounded by all the poinsettias, so I want to talk with you about Christmas. This, uh, this message is uh, near and dear to my own heart for reasons that I think will become obvious in a minute. I'm actually going to begin in the very text that Dr. Scrivener used last week, which is Isaiah chapter 9. So if you'd like to join me there, Isaiah chapter 9, we will, in a moment, make a beeline to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament. So Isaiah 9 and Matthew chapter 1. Christmas is as familiar a story, I suspect, in the church as any that we could name. The Christmas story is more prominent than any Old Testament narrative, though there are plenty of Old Testament narratives that are very prominent. I suspect that every young child has heard much about Noah and the flood and Jonah and the fish. By the way, the, only the King James translates that a whale. It's a fish technicalities really bug people, but that bugs me. It's, I'm kind of OCD about calling that a whale. It's a fish. It's a big fish. Could have been a whale, but the Bible doesn't say it's a whale, unless you read the King James. Every now and then someone comes and says, my Bible says it's a whale. Well, that means you read the King James. It's okay. It's not wrong. Well, it is wrong, but it's not right. It's not a big deal, but I've lost track of my train of thought. But anyway, But this story, the Christmas story, is entirely familiar. We know the story. But it's my uh, contention that we often major on the what. The what is Mary and Joseph, an angel, Bethlehem, a stable, shepherds, wise men, an evil king, a star. Since we're, it's Christmas, can I just say the Bible never says that Joseph and Mary rode on a donkey? The Bible never says that. But you know, do you know what a nativity scene looks like without a donkey? It looks wrong. But that's the power of story over the power of the printed word. We know the story better than we know the Bible. Not a big deal. How did Mary get there? She was nine months pregnant. I bet you a dollar to a donut she rode a donkey. But it doesn't say that. But we get lost in the what, and we forget the why. Why? But when you read the story in the Bible, the Bible tells you the what, certainly. But the Bible never divorces the what from the why. The why. And so what really matters, I think, for your heart and for mine, is the why. Because the Bible makes sure that it is tied together to all of these data points surrounding the story. Does it really matter that Mary's name was Mary? Well, it, it does because it was her name and God selected her. But her name is not the point, is it? 
Joseph. He, Joseph is not the star of the story, though I have preached a, a sermon on Joseph that I think is one of the best Christmas sermons ever. I've heard a lot. I've preached a lot. And my best Christmas sermon is actually the best Christmas sermon I've ever heard on Joseph. I think he's one of the shining stars of the Christmas narrative. But he's not the point. He is nowhere near the point. He is so far down the list of who's the point, what's the point, that it doesn't matter. Except it matters because God did name him Joseph and he is of the lineage of David, even as Mary. But we get lost in the what and we forget the why. So I want to show you the why today. Why was Jesus born? And I want to show you that in the scripture quickly. So first of all, I want to show you that the answer to that question is the word hope. Hope, H-O-P-E. And I want to show you this here in Isaiah 9, verse 1. Charles did a great job last week. I hope Charles is watching via live stream, but maybe he's not. But uh, he did a great job reminding us of this. But I, I want to show, show it to you again. Verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now, what is the theme of those two verses? One uh, is a quote from uh, another Old Testament passage, specifically Job chapter 3. So, verse 2 is a quote from Job. So the, the low-hanging fruit is to ask, well, what's the theme of Job? Well, that's pretty easy for those of us who follow the Bible, understand the Bible. The theme of Job is suffering. The theme of Job is darkness. So you'll note that's the word that stands out. It's mentioned twice in that one verse, verse 2, darkness. What's the theme of the first verse here in Isaiah 9? Well, right out of the gate, he references the word gloom. Gloom. Right after that, he uses the word anguish. Gloom and anguish. Nobody associates that with Christmas. Gloom, anguish, darkness. And yet, that is precisely the why of Christmas. That God wanted to give hope to people who are in gloom, anguish, and in darkness. God is sending hope. The story of Jesus and his coming to earth is a story of hope. Now, why does hope matter? <laughs> well, the psychologically trained here will tell you that if you find somebody who is hopeless, who feels, if you will, a depravity of hope, that they are capable of doing all kinds of bad things. The ultimate bad things would be to not only hurt themselves, but to hurt you. So, people who do bad things to other people that are too bad even to mention in this setting, do so because there is a failure of hope. 
They don't feel hope. They don't, they don't anticipate brighter days, better days. They don't anticipate joy returning to their lives again. And for the lack of hope, they lash out. They hurt themselves and they hurt others, potentially. And a smaller scale, that's the reason that we uh, resort to sin. That's the reason why marriages break up, because I found hope somewhere else, or I found hope with someone else. And so hope is a powerful thing, and I suggest to you that your life is driven by hope. Faith, hope, and love. These abide, these three. And yet the greatest of these is love. But don't ever forget that amongst that trinity of virtues in 1 Corinthians 13, hope is front and center. You show me someone who has lost hope, and I'll show you someone who is capable of virtually anything because they want to feel differently. So he points that out here in chapter 9. And uh, Charles did a great job. I will not belabor it much except to remind you that Zebulun and Naphtali are two regions. Uh, these are two of the 12 tribes of Israel that later came to be called the region called Galilee. So Bethlehem, Nazareth, and the Galilean ministry of Jesus around the Sea of Galilee all occurs in the ancient tribal area called Zebulun and Naphtali. What, what did these people, what did these people do? Imagine, they, they were given this land, they, they prospered in this land, God blessed them in this land, and ultimately, uh, they turned away from God, they became uh, followers of pagan gods, and people like Jezebel and so forth, others uh, came to be rulers over this region, and there's this great fascination with the uh, pagan Canaanite gods, that the, they were supposed to displace the Baals, the fertility gods of the Canaanites, and so forth, and God hated that and judge them for that, and eventually use the Assyrian nation to come in and overrun them, take them off as captives, so their young children were taken off into captivity, their young girls were, were brutalized, and, and eventually made household slaves, or, or part of some foreign man's uh, uh, harem, and, and so forth. And so all of this happens, and so there is this great darkness we can only imagine that level of darkness. None of us have ever experienced that in a national way like would be the case here. But Isaiah prophesies in the 8th century B.C. and says, the gloom you're experiencing will be replaced. It's temporary. I've got good news. The hopelessness that so dominates your life is not the final word. I mention this all the time in funerals, but it seems when you lose a loved one that death has spoken and has robbed a loved one from you. And it seems that death has had the final word. And yet the New Testament clearly mocks death in its so-called commanding the ground of owning your destiny. Oh, death, the New Testament says, where is your sting? Oh, 
death. Where is your, your bite, so to speak? Where, where is your, your power? You don't, you don't have power over the people of God. So even death, as terrible as death is, as, as grievous as death is, as, as debilitating as death can feel at times for those whom we love, it is not the final word. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So death is not merely the final word. It rather is just merely the door through which we walk to enter into the promised land, the promised reward. So there is hope beyond death. There is hope beyond any sorrow in this life for those who are God's people. So Isaiah prophesies to a group of people who are God's people, and he says to them, do not build your life on the gloom. Do not build your life on the despair. Do not build your life on the darkness. Because the people who walk in darkness will be delivered from darkness. There's going to be a light. It's interesting always to me that when God appears in the Christmas story, He appears to the Magi by by means of a light star. He appears to the shepherds by means of a great light. He, he appears again and again in this medium, this format, this way of making himself known. God is a God of revelation. God is not lurking in the shadows. That is Satan's work. God rather reveals himself plainly, and he says, I am here, and by virtue of my arriving, you need to know I am actually in charge. I have the truth. And my character, my nature, my method is to shine upon you and to give you hope and to show you. One of my uh, favorite stories you may recall is uh, the prophet of God is is following God and his attendant, his, if you will, his man Friday is with him. He's scared and they're down, of course, in the southern part and they're afraid for their lives. And the prophet calls out to God, show him. And so the Bible says that he opened his eyes, the servant. He opened the eyes of the servant to see what the prophet could see. And the hillside around the enemy's town is covered with chariots of fire. Angels, remember angels are army men, not choir men, right? They are, they are outfitted for war. And so the, the hillsides are filled with chariots and angels are all around them. The prophet is not worried. His attendant is very worried until God gives him hope. Understand, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to give you hope. So you say, well, Jesus came because of these data points. I'm not minimizing the data points. They are necessary, but never divorce them from the why. Why did Jesus come? So that you, friend, might have hope. I don't know what is going on in your heart today. I don't know where you are 
with the Lord or without the Lord. I don't know. I just know this, that God says there's an antidote for your darkness, and it is His Son. And if you will look to His Son, you will find the why. You will find the hope that you're looking for. I implore you to do that. Let me show you a second illustration of this in Matthew chapter 1. Here, uh, the emphasis is a little different, but uh, I, I hope it will be of encouragement to you this morning. Verse 26 in Matthew chapter 1. You know the story, but, but I'm going to read it anyway because I like the story. So there you go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I'm coming back to that verse. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That is the name of God, El Elyon, the God Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High. El Elyon will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm going to jump over Mary's visit to Elizabeth and pick up Mary's song called the Magnificat. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies, and in Latin that is Magnificat, so that's the term. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, El Elyon, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, meaning Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. So as we've already seen in Isaiah, the issue there is hope, but here the issue is promise. Again, my hope today is that you'll see not only the data points, the what of the nativity of Christ, but the why. Now, I want you to notice in this story a couple of things. Uh, Mary wants clarity on the what. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? 
since I'm a virgin? That's a question related to the the, the process or the data. How, how, how is it that a virgin is going to conceive? How is that a virgin is going to bear a child? How can this be? We can talk about that at length, and that is an important point. It needs to be known and, and processed and so forth. But the quick, the quick thing that happens here is that she moves quickly from the, the what or the how to the why. So then at this, this great passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 46, the Bible doesn't detail the what, because by the way, how does it all, it, it, in any way, how does it serve you? For you to know how God does supernatural things. How? How does that help you? Well, I just wonder how. Okay. So you just want some sort of fanciful titillation of your wonder machine. Do you realize that if you knew, which by the way, I don't think you have the mental acuity to be able to know. But if you knew, it wouldn't help you be a better Christian one little bit. Not one bit. How does a virgin bear a child you don't have a category for that so you know what god turns out pretty smart he doesn't waste his time or your time telling you but he immediately moves to the why and so what is famous about Matthew chapter 1? What, what is prominent about Matthew chapter 1? What do we know about Matthew chapter 1? Well, we know what Mary said in response. And her song called the Magnificat to us is, is all about the why. I want you to notice that she deals with promises. She says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, for he's looked upon the humble estate of, my, of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud, brought down the mighty, exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry, the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, you say, well, okay, you just read that a second time. Why do we need to hear that again? Because I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see this why. I want you to note that this entire section of the Bible called Mary's Song, this entire section is all Old Testament. You say, well, of course it is. There is no New Testament. Well, that's my point. That's precisely the point, isn't it? That when we talk about Christmas today, invariably, we're so fixated on the New Testament that we forget the Old Testament, that all of this is just the next chapter of a very, very, very long story. And we, we talk about 
Bethlehem, when we talk about Mary and Joseph and a donkey and choirs of angels and shepherds and lights and magi and so forth, we talk about these things. And the reality is the Bible mentions those things, but it mentions those things in the context of God finishing an old, old story. I want to encourage you today not to be so fixated on those data points, the what, that you forget the why. Mary has nothing to say about the what. She has everything to say about the why. Verse 46, or rather verse 48, she is, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, all generations will call me blessed. Why would she make that statement? Because she knows she is bearing the Christ. She knows what's going on here. I told somebody, somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, they said, what are you preaching on? On the Sunday after Christmas. I said, I'm preaching on Mary, did you know? That's what I'm preaching on. And some of you are going to go away and say, Brother Greg doesn't like that song. Actually, I do like the song very, very, very much. We had it here Christmas Eve. You weren't here, you missed it. It's interesting, a couple of people said, you know, it's a tradition in our church. Let me let the record show, this was the second time it's ever been sung on Christmas Eve in the history of our church. The song was written in 1984. It was set to music in 1991. The tune that we sing to Mary Did You Know is only 30 years old. It's hard to call something 30 years old an ancient tradition. It's only been sung twice here. Now, there is a third time. It was sung in a Christmas musical. So it's sung three times from the platform at our church. But it's amazing to me how much the human mind believes things become traditions. Oh, well, that's another point. Mary, did you know? The, the lyrics of that song ask these questions. Mary, did, did you know you're son would walk on water, give sight to a blind man, calm the storm? The answer, those questions are no. Mary did not know. She didn't know the data points of what Jesus was going to do, give sight to blind, walk on water, change water into wine. Mary didn't know those data points. But there are other lyrics in that song that said, Mary, did you know that your son would save our son's and daughters. Do you know the answer to that question? It's not no. Mary did know that Jesus was going to save our sons and daughters. You say, well, how would, how would he know that? Would she know that? Because she actually read the Bible. She believed the Bible. She said in verse 48, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because she's about to bear the Christ. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, for holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is the work of God. She knows that this is a work of God. There's another lyric in the song, Mary, did you know? Did you know that one day he would rule the nations? The answer to that is yes, she did know that. By the way, I like Mark Lowry, okay? I'm not bashing the song. 
I like Mark Lowry a lot. And I think it's a great song. But she did know. And the reason that we know that she knew is because of how she responds. If you go back to verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of God most high will overshadow you, and that therefore the child will be called holy, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, who is the Son of God and, and what is His role? Well, we don't have time to, to tease that out, but I assure you, friend, again and again and again, what will we do? Psalm 2. I'm going to throw a, a uh, curveball to the guys in the back. Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2 with me quickly. I've rumored one day that I would write a book, and my book is going to be on Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let, their, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right? Two things stand out in Psalm 2. We could go on. Two things. Number one, the coming king is called the Son of God. So God is going to send a king, and that king is going to be his son. So Psalm 2, which would have been very, 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 very well known to Mary and to every other devout Jew, Psalm 2 would have, been, would have immediately told her the Son of God is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He must come from God. He must. So she knows that. Secondly, if you go back again to verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves against, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's throw them off. Let's throw God off. Let, let's cast him off from us. Let's break free from God. So the song says, by the way, one day, do you know that one day your son will rule the nations? The answer is yes. How would she know that? Because of Psalm 2, among other things. The Bible tells us again and again and again. We could go to Psalm 132. We could go to Psalm 89. We could, we could go to Psalm uh, 1. We, we could go to any number of places, and we would find, in fact, that the promise of God is that he would one day send his son, and that his son is going to to be the Christ, he's going to serve God by, by compelling these enemies away, and he's going to bring hope, and this is guaranteed by the word of his promise. It is his promise. So the, the point, of course, is that this Christmas story is the fulfillment of the promise. But we have a tendency to short-circuit our emphasis, and we say, well, just thank you, God, for the gift of your son. Well, okay. Do you, really, do you realize what that means? This is not just any old son of God. This is the son of God, the, the promised son of God, the promised 
God, God gives grace in the person of his only son to me. It's a promise. And Mary makes no bones about it. She connects her experience with God's promise like that. I would ask you today, what value is the promise of God for you? Well, we, we don't live, as it were, on the same side of the promise that Mary did. She was on the other side of the promise. We live on this side. The promise is actually accomplished. The Christ has come. But here we are, 2,000 years removed from that promise, and we may have a tendency to think, well, when is he coming back? He promised he would come, and he did, and he promised he would come back, but it's been 2,000 years. How long is he going to make us wait? The answer to that is unknown to me or any other person, but the Bible proclaims that he is coming back, and when he comes back, it will be a time of great victory. Not coming back as a suffering servant, as a lamb slain, but rather he's coming back as the conquering king. He's coming back to do business with Satan, to finalize the battle, to conclude the battle between God and Satan. And that promise needs to resonate in your heart day after day after day. And no better time than at Christmas except perhaps Easter, when he is raised from the dead, victorious over the grave. Death has a bark, but it is a chihuahua bark. It's no Rottweiler. I don't know if you ever heard a Rottweiler bark, but you want to be moving. Chihuahuas, not so much. Death has a bark. But God is going to put an end to all of that, and he has promised this. And we live in the shadow of that promise. And so we ought to take courage from Mary's confidence in her perspective of the promise and multiply that into our own. We have one more data point that she didn't have. She had never seen or heard of a virgin bearing a child but you have. She didn't know anything about the Son of God being crucified, hung on a tree, buried, and then raised from the dead. Did Mary know that? Absolutely not. She could not have known that. But you do. In other words, you have more data than Mary did. But my, my contention is we have a tendency to forget all of this Old Testament news and act as if none of that has relevancy to my life. Who are you kidding? Of course it has relevancy. Because this is just the next installment of the old, old story. I thought about it this way. You know, a number of you took pictures for your Christmas gatherings, as you should, by the way. And 10 years from now, you'll look at those pictures and you say, boy, I was a little heavy back then. Or I remember when I was that skinny. Or who cut your hair? So forth. You'll have these reflections and you'll evaluate something 10 years in the future. And you'll say, I don't know what we were thinking in 2021. Well, we were living our lives and doing what people do. But you understand that 
that there are these snapshots of our life, of our progression through life, and they are treasures in our life. They are precious in our lives, and there's no reason to minimize those things. But understand that if you're going to live your 70 or 80 or 90 years, there are going to be several snapshots that are not the whole picture. There is the 10-year-old you and the 20-year-old you and the 30-year-old you and the 40-year-old you. Those pictures matter because they are you. You may not like the specific circumstances. There may be seasons in those pictures where times were dark, times were hopeless, times were frustrating. There were times of anger. There were times of contrary, joy. There there were times of real hope. There were times of real purpose. There was times when everybody was on the same page in your family and everybody was walking sort of arm in arm. Maybe that's not where you are today or not where you're going to be 10 years from now. But the point is these snapshots of our lives don't tell every portion of our lives. You can read Isaiah 9. It doesn't tell the story of Micah 1. You can read Exodus 20. That doesn't tell the story of Deuteronomy 5. That's the two tellings, by the way, of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. The problem is there's 40 years in between. One is as they are on their way to Kadesh Barnea, and the other is after they've rejected God by the the golden calf. He consigns them to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and all of those folks die in the wilderness. Now in Deuteronomy 5, they ratify the the Ten Commandments a second time. There is a 40-year gap in between. So you have these pictures of the Bible telling us the story, and you have to weave all of that together, and it gives hope. It gives lift to our lives. I hope you see that. Don't get lost in the what and forget the why. Why did Jesus come? Well, that brings me to the last point, and that is that Christmas is more than just hope and promise. It is also rescue. Rescue. See it plainly in Mary's song, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. I, uh, I love this story. I'll, I'll just show it to you in Exodus 34. Turn there if you would, Exodus 34. This is the ratification uh, experience of the Ten Commandments. So they got the Ten Commandments, and now we have to consecrate it with blood. And so there's this great blood ceremony here in chapter 34. And God speaks. So this is the voice. These are the words of God that we're going to read. Exodus 34 and verse 6. He responds to their uh, acceptance of the Ten Commandments. And, And this is what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression for sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is God's telling you his name. So Note again what he says. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, 
So, so who is God? He is a merciful God. Now, what, what are the people's of that day who don't worship the one true God, what, what is their view of their God? Their view of their God is that he is capricious. He gets up on the wrong side of the bed and he does dumb things and hurts us. Think about your understanding of Greek mythology. What, what was characteristic of the Greek gods? Zeus and so forth. These so-called wannabe gods, pretend gods, imaginary gods. What, how would you define them? Again, they are capricious they, they, they're, they're bad, they have bad mood, or they're angry, or they don't get along, or they're having a skirmish where, uh, where they live, and, and they take it out on us, and they, they're not merciful. So th- there is no picture of a merciful God. I, I could go on and on. Think about the, the picture of God that some people paint, even of the one true God, that God is a God of uh, only a God of wrath and God of anger and that God is, is fire and brimstone and that God is, is, is so judgmental as to never be merciful to which I want to say, are you reading the Bible? When God tells you his name, he tells you his name is merciful. It turns out that God is a God who rescues sinners And he's been that way from the get-go. Just think about Adam and Eve. The penalty of eating this forbidden fruit is death. To which I ask you, did they die? Well, they did eventually, but they didn't immediately. Why didn't they? Because God is a God of mercy. From the beginning, God has been patient and long-suffering, and His steadfast love, His loving kindness endures forever. He tells us so here in Exodus 34. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, thousands. Some translations say thousands of generations. He keeps this steadfast love again and again because God is a God who forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives, forgives and forgives. Let me show you this in Psalm 89, verse 1. Here, David writes, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. What did God promise? He promised David that his descendant would be on the throne. That occurs in 2 Samuel 7. His descendant will be on the throne forever. Mary knew this. Mary was not oblivious to the Old Testament. She was not ignorant of the promises of God. She was not ignorant that they would need a Savior, that they would need a rescuer. They would need someone to come and redeem them and get them out of this mess. (laughs) And it turns out, God had a plan for that and was working his plan over thousands of years. The Bible records 6,000 years of history, 2,000 years since the Bible closed, about 8,000 years of history. How long does it take for God to finish his plan? Well, I suggest to you, friend, that the knowledge of that is above your pay grade. You might say, why is God taking so long? beats me. If I had a vote, we'd already been done.
like you, I look forward to the place where there's no more sorrow. No more crying or dying. I look forward to the place where people aren't tragically killed, brutalized, where women aren't raped. I look forward to a place where sin doesn't exist. I do. But there's a lot of more a lot of additional people who are still walking in darkness. And so those of us who have the light, we're the rescue squad. We know the data points of Jesus and the Christmas story, but I would ask you, what in the world are you doing with that? Are you applying that to your own life and giving you lift? Are you, are you finding that it's buoying your soul? That you know that God is a God of hope and He come for you to give you hope and that God is a God who keeps His promises and He keeps His promises and He keeps His promises. And do you understand that God has given you this hope and these promises in order that you might be a part of his rescue effort for those who are not like you in the race? I was raised in a church with parents who took me to church. We didn't do a lot at home, but the church, the church was an instrument of God's grace in my life. Why does God tarry? Why does God wait? Why has Jesus not come back yet? Because there are several more people who need to be rescued. That's why. You already have been. And if you think for a minute that God doesn't want you to continue to be about the business of rescuing people, then you have misunderstood the Bible. God sent His only begotten Son into the world, a dark, lonely, hopeless world. In order that he might give him the throne of his father David and that he might be king of kings and lord of lords. But there are millions, even billions of people today who've never heard that story, don't know that data, and don't have any idea that there is a God who loves them. And we have a tendency to internalize that, turn it in on ourselves and say, I am a Christian, I'm safe, and I have nothing else to think about. (laughs) Well, you're right on two points. You're a Christian and you're safe. But the God who sent someone years ago to rescue you now intends for you, friend, to take the baton and get busy handing the baton to someone else. Mary understood that she was just a link in the chain. And that's all I am. And that's all you are. And this Christmas is no different than any other Christmas. Except it's the latest Christmas. The latest Christmas for me to remember that the God who did all of this 
did all of this so that people would be saved. Let us not forget that. Let us not retreat to our own little piece of the action and say, it's all about me and mine. No, friend, it's all about us. And us is a lot bigger than just you and yours. Let us be faithful to stay vigilant with the good news that Christ came to save and to rescue sinners. And glory in the fact that he's done that for us. I wish you the very best Christmas understanding. An understanding that ties the entire story to the coming of Christ. This little picture is but a picture. But it is a long, long story. Don't fail to worship Christ today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God of grace to sinners. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the promise of the coming of Christ. Thank you for the assurance that you save sinners. Thank you for these things because they are treasures to us. and Our lives are richer and better for them. We rejoice in Jesus today and we thank you for your tender mercies. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to know.